0: In the name of Jesus, Amen. Dear Saints of God, we don't know that much about St. Valentine. The best that we can tell, he was a Christian priest and pastor in Rome who was martyred by Emperor Claudius or somewhere, someone like that, around the year 270. It was a little over 200 years later in 496 that Pope Galatius I included St. Valentine among those whose names are justly reverenced among men, but whose acts are known only to God. And that's about right. We don't know much of what he did. But this is why he is honored among the martyrs of the church. Because he died confessing the faith. He's honored by the church, in fact, every February 14th, and even in some sort of strange way by the world. But he had no such honor in his life. For he was a priest at the time when the church was illegal. When being a Christian was a crime. This was a time when the cult of Caesar had grown to the point where Caesars considered themselves to be gods on earth, and they required, in a little way, worship from everyone living in the Roman Empire. Now this worship that the Caesars required was different than what we think of worship. You wouldn't come to the Caesar temple on Sunday and hear sermons about the works of Caesars or something, something like this. But there was altars all over the empire and you would go and you would bring a pinch of incense and you would burn it there to Caesar and you would make the confession, Caesar is Lord. Now for most Romans this was not a big deal. Because after all, they had any sort of any number of gods—dozen, two dozen gods—that they would worship and they would pray to, and this sort of thing. To to add another god to their list of gods is 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 not really that big of a thing. Uh, The more, the merrier seems to be how it was. But for the Christians, it was different. Jesus makes exclusive claims. He does not share the stage. You shall have no other gods before me. And there is no getting around this. The Jews also had the first commandment, but they had an exemption. They were a recognized legal religion by the Roman Empire. So the Jews were not required to make this confession of Caesar and to sacrifice to him. But the Christians, especially the second generation Christians and and thereon, were not Jews. They were Gentiles, Romans or whatever else. So they did not have this exemption. They were obliged by law to worship Caesar. And they refused. They wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Caesar is Lord? (laughs) No. Jesus is Lord. Jesus alone. Jesus only. But to say such a thing, at the time of persecution, in the first few centuries of the church, To say such a thing as Jesus is Lord is a death sentence. Now, we understand, of course, that not every Christian was put to death, certainly not, and that these persecutions were not consistent. They would come in waves. In fact, from the first persecution under Nero in about the year 64 to the Edict of Milan, which was the year... Uh, Three thirteen, which gave Christianity legal status in the Roman Empire. In, in this time period, there were about ten major persecutions. Something bad would happen, and the, and the Caesars would blame it on the Christians and start a little persecution here or there. Or, or the, the Caesars would like to make a point and emphasize their cult and the, and the oblation that the people owed to them and so he would find a few people who refused and he would call out the lions or the axes or the stake for burning and the Christians would be martyred. And what this means is that in the first few centuries of the church there is real and actual danger to your life for claiming to be a Christian. It was to stand up and confess Jesus and refuse to confess Caesar. It was a capital crime. When you took it upon your lips to say, Jesus is Lord, you are forfeiting your life to Jesus who was crucified and raised. You are giving to Caesar all that he desires, all that he wants, even your blood. This is what's behind St. Paul's letter when he writes to the Corinthians, chapter 12, not quite yet chapter 13, when Paul writes this, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God can ever say Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit would put into the mouths of the Christians this bold confession that might be their death, but this confession was also their life. We can assume then that something like this happened to St. Valentine about 1,700 years ago. He was called to make a confession of Caesar and instead confessed Christ, and he was rewarded with death Indeed, this was seen as a reward. For these early Christians, there was no more blessed death than the death of a martyr. Tertullian, the early church father, says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this is true enough. So we have, we Christians have, in our history, in our family lineage as a church, we have St. Valentine and we have all of the other faithful martyr band to thank for their confession of faith, for their refusal to compromise, for their willingness to suffer all even death rather than forsake the Lord Jesus who did not forsake them. But what does all this have to do with Valentine's Day? Nothing. (laughs) Maybe we can make some very, very loose connections. This day, uh, February 14th, is probably the day, sometime lost in the history, uh, in the clouds of history, is probably the day that St. Valentine's bones were moved from one place to another. It would be called the translations of the saints. and, And that's mostly how we get their days. And it could be some sort of ancient history a tradition in Italy that on February 14th the birds picked their mates for the year and so this day is somehow connected to love. There's even a more obscure legend that says that St. Valentine when he was in prison waiting to go off to his martyrdom wrote a note to the daughter of, the, of his prison guard on an oddly shaped piece of paper and that this is the origin of Valentine's Day cards. But really, these two things have nothing much at all to do with one another. The red of the blood of St. Valentine and the pink of the decorations at Walgreens are really an essentially different hue. And I think that when we turn to the epistle lesson for today, Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this chapter on love, that we see this difference of hue as well. For this text, 1 Corinthians 13, is, is a text that's often read at weddings. In fact, many of us had the text read at our own wedding, I'm sure. And like Valentine's Day, the love is assumed to be the love of marriage, the love between husband and wife. And while it's true that husband and wife, as God gives them completely to one another, that husband and wife are to love one another and serve one another and consider the needs of the other before themselves, this text, 1 Corinthians 13, is not about that. Now, make no mistake, the love in marriage is good. It's very good, is what God says after he created Eve and gave her to Adam. And we should rejoice and we should thank God for it. But it's not what the Holy Spirit is teaching us about in 1 Corinthians 13. The love that Paul is talking about in this chapter is a love that defines the church it is a love that marks what it means to be a Christian. It is the love that Jesus is talking about when, on Monday Thursday, he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. John 13, 35. Christians love. It's what they do. It's what we do. It's how our faith in Christ is seen by each other and by the world. If you want to know what God wants you to do day in and day out, how he wants you to live, what his will for your life is, you have it in this one word, love. Love God and love your neighbor. These are the greatest commandments. Paul writes this in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for all the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to the neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So while the Christians in Corinth were wrangling with each other about spiritual gifts, about who spoke in tongues more than the the other person, and, and all of this other stuff, Paul cuts through it all and says that there are three gifts that the Holy Spirit gives that matter most in the church, three gifts that will persevere, three gifts that will be for the church of all time, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing, for love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So the church is marked by love. So our Christian lives are marked by love. But this brings us to a question, doesn't it? How's your love? Does this list here describe you? (laughs) If you think so, then repent of your pride. (laughs) If love is the fulfilling of the law... And if the law shows us our sin, then perhaps there is no more terrifying and destroying word in all of the Bible than this one word, love. For none of us have loved like we ought. None of us have loved like we should. None of us have loved as we have been commanded to love by God in the text of the Scriptures. None of us. So this little word, love, which seems so nice, this little word, love, kills us. It it puts us to death. It shows us our utter failure to live as God has commanded us and desires for us to live. But look, dear Christians, our comfort and our hope and our peace and our life is not found in our love. It's not found in the fact that we love others Our comfort and our hope and our peace and our salvation is found in the fact that we are loved. We, you, each one of you, are loved with a love so deep and so broad and so wonderful that it takes us loveless sinners and makes us lovely in the eyes of God. It is this love The love of God for us. The love of Jesus in his death. This love for you is your salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Or as we sang together, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. This love is our hope and our joy and our salvation. This love, the love of God for us, is the the open door to eternal life. This love is the love that sets us free and gives us hope and, and will bring us in the end to life eternal. This is the love that St. Valentine knew, the love of his Savior, Jesus. And when he closed his eyes to sleep, the sleep of death, even though it was a violent death, he opened them to see this love in the face of Jesus, his Savior. And so, too, you and I, dear saints, are held fast in the grip of this love, in the death of Jesus, and we will, by this love, come at last, to stand alongside all of the martyrs and all of the saints that have gone before us as we sing the praise of his unending love, a love that brought him to death for us. And this is our joy and our peace. May God grant to us that as we consider St. Valentine and all of the martyrs, that the love of Jesus for them and for us would capture us and bring us all the way to eternal life. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.